Hello, everyone. Raise your hand if you are jittery or nervous about something in the upcoming election. <laughs> Did all hands go up? I don't know if all hands <laughs> went up, but standouts, all of you who didn't raise your hand. Thank you for joining us on the Analyst Podcast. I'm Joni Balter, KCTS9 political analyst here with C.R. Douglas. He's political analyst for Q13. And we are doing a day before the election quick take on the politics of our region. Thanks for joining us. Today, CR, hey there. Hello. We must discuss, we must, the rogue Washington state elector who could decide the fate of our country. Yeah, what a great story. Who doesn't love Washington being, like, in the forefront on something like that? We are now a battleground state, maybe because yeah, of this guy. they missed guy. it. They missed it. We will talk about the Washington Secretary of State race, not because it's something that you normally discuss this close to an election, but because of late-breaking news about the incumbent. And what in the heck do Leonardo DiCaprio and U.S. Senator Slade Gorton of Washington have in common about a Washington state ballot initiative? Dan Evans, last-minute letter to the editor regarding Republican gubernatorial candidate Bill Bryant. So let's get to it. Something very curious going on with Robert Satyakum, the Washington state elector and Puyallup tribal member who announced sort of gleefully that he will not vote for Hillary Clinton. Wait a minute. He is a Democratic elector. So think about it. It could come down to Hillary Clinton with 269 electoral votes, 270 needed, and Robert Satyakum, who's supposed to follow the will of the voters of Washington. Uh, she's ahead, as you know, double digits in this state, and he has said in no uncertain terms that he will not cast his vote for Hillary Clinton. He's a Bernie Sanders guy. And as you know, CR, and everyone knows or should know, state law requires electors to pledge to vote for the winner of the state's popular vote. But here's the problem. It has a piddly $1,000 fine. What are you thinking, CR? Could Robert Satyakum, this sounds so <laughs> wild, maybe along with the FBI, elect Donald Trump? How embarrassing and strange would that be? Well, and it's not just Satyakam. You have this guy up in Everett, another Democratic elector who has been a Sanders supporter, who says he may not vote uh, with Washington if they go for Hillary Clinton. So two of our 12 electors are wobbly at this point. Um, my feeling is you should never agree to be an elector for your party, Democrat, Republican, Independent, if you are not willing to to go for the party's nominee. In other words, he has some concern about Clinton. He has worries that maybe she's not sufficiently pro-tribe. He doesn't like the Obama administration on the Dakota Access Pipeline. He's got all these concerns. That's fine. Those are the concerns you take into the ballot box when you're voting your ticket. But when you're an elector, the point of it is you are just executing the will of the people. You're not there to use your conscience. So I think it's sort of uh, odd for him to be doing this. Um, apparently, this isn't the first time electors have gone rogue. It's happened about, I don't know, 60, 70 times in the history of the country. Never decided an election. So if this did, it would be, you know, phenomenal. I still think it's not going to be as close 
as six, 269 to 269 in the Electoral College. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think Clinton will comfortably win this. I say that a day before the election. And so I don't think Satyakam, whatever he does, is going to make a difference. Well, here's a thought. Like, you know, what is Robert Satyakam doing today, for example? You know, he, the Puyallup tribe gave something like $400,000 to Hillary Clinton. So do you think he has a few visitors today and a few <laughs> friends coming by to kind of— Pal up, I, I, chat I, it up. I'm sure he does. You know, this will give Democrats pause for how well they vetted their electors. You know, you got to make sure that you don't, you don't, and, and basically each party elects their electors typically at their party conventions. What so happened this summer for the Democrats? You know, you got to vet these people. I mean, there should be no one that should be wobbly and at this point. Vet means like, will you follow the will of the popular vote? Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. I'm surprised. I mean, you mentioned it that there's only a thousand dollar fine for not for not. Uh, you know, fulfilling this duty. Apparently, you know, you are allowed under the Constitution to to actually sort of go rogue, but it basically never happens. Um, don't you and think it, that fine and it shouldn't been, happen? Don't I don't you think, think that, that fine has been there on the books for maybe like fifty years, and it needs to be updated a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes. Secretary of State race. You mentioned it. Um, it's the race that never seems to to stay out of the news. Every news cycle, it seems like there's something about this. Um, I think partly what's going on here also is that because you don't have a real competitive governor's race or a Senate race or an attorney general race, there's more ink that's probably given to this uh, than typical years. But what do you make of this latest kind of revelation about Kim Wyman and sort of big Republican donors? Well, in a normal year, you know, this this might not even be front page news as it was. It was on the front page of both the Seattle Times and the New York Times. And what I mean by a normal year is you would normally have enough Republicans and independents out there to just say, we're not going to worry about that. But since the Republican vote is probably suppressed in our state, this is a deal. Uh, You know, uh, Kim Wyman, in the background of this race, she's the experienced elections person. Her Democratic challenger, Tina Podlodowski, is not. But I think it's positively deadly three days before the election to be on the front page and not on the and front briefly page. Describe what the yeah yeah what the she's sin on, is if you she's will. She's on the front page, talking about private meetings with Republican interests like the NRA. Oh my gosh, the Washington gun measure has something like two to one support in this state. Kim Wyman was also in meetings with Reynolds American and the National Restaurant Association. Now these were meetings where. Uh, the things were arranged where folks would sit down and kind of talk about how initiatives work in their states. But this is while ballots were being prepared and while initiatives were being, signatures were being gathered. A very icky kind of association here, not at all like Washington State. I would just say, what the heck was Kim Iman thinking? Yeah, and a little more context here. The the insinuation of this article, and it actually came out in the New York Times, and it wasn't just Kim Iman, it was several secretaries, right. several she Republican wasn't secretaries alone. I didn't of mean state to, to imply that, uh, in that, any way. that were meeting with these interests. And, you know, the, the almost explicit, um, but certainly implicit um, kind of takeaway is that these interests were trying to cozy up to secretaries of state because they, in most places, write the ballot title. And a friendly ballot title, we know, can help an initiative. So these people were working on minimum wage ballot titles or trying to trying to stop minimum wage ballot titles from being bad. Um, they were trying to have, you know, gun measure titles that were, you know, favored the NRA side, all that kind of stuff. So so it was sort of a cozy kind of kind of set of meetings. 
but um, two things. Our Secretary of State, it turns out, doesn't write ballot titles. In our state, it actually is the Attorney General. So they were cozying up to Kim and for, for, for hoping for influence she doesn't even wield. Secondly, we should say... Democratic interests are doing this too. I mean, there are Democratic interests cozying up to Democratic secretaries of states because they want to influence ballot language, which which in most states is controlled by the secretary of state. And, you know, this is very interesting because there's this rush now in the citizen initiative states to kind of do the legislation this way now because what? Congress is stuck. State legislators don't are afraid like crazy of the NRA and things like this. So this this is like a new wave of campaigning that's very popular. It's the, it's the new normal, if you will. I mean, we have a record number of initiatives on ballots throughout the country this year. I think there's 72 of them. I think they'll they'll have about a billion dollars worth of spending. I mean, this is the new way a lot of laws are happening at the local level. So a lot rides you know, on um, whether a minimum wage initiative passes or doesn't pass, whether a gun measure passes or doesn't pass, you have all these kind of entrenched interests. And ballot language is important. And that's kind of what, what both sides have been have been gaming to do. We should say, you know, to be fair to 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 the Republican side on this, I mean Bob Ferguson is the one in our state, the attorney general, who writes the ballot language. Um, and he's and a listen, Democrat. He's a Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you know, he's yeah, yeah. got he's had a ton of support from the SEIU unions, who you know clearly want ballot language their certain way. So and most of I think the initiatives on our, uh, on our on our ballot this year tend to be coming from the liberal source. That yep. they're the ones using the ballot more more aggressively. Yeah, and one of those in particular, fifteen oh one, got an incredibly favorable ballot language, ballot title, um, saying that it had to do with, you know, identity oh, the theft and helping seniors and that kind of stuff. And it's it's really a battle between the unions and and and, and some Which it never really tanks. mentions. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't really explain that very well. So the ballot there is written to be very, very friendly on that. I do think um, going forward, however, that story, you know, it was a national story in the New York Times. I do think there's going to be some fallout from it. I think you're going to have a lot more scrutiny of secretaries of states and AGs that, that, that are controlling ballot language, because this is the new game, these initiatives. There will be more of them in the future, and the fight over kind of who controls them is, is, is going to be – there will be more exposure to that. And I think, these, I think these folks in power have to be very careful. I can see this being a very close race that's sort of in our famously slow ballot counting kind of – goes on for for some period. Yeah, I mean, of time. I think it's the one state it's certainly the one statewide race that that that's gotten most attention, that's gotten most interesting, that's sort of a significant challenge to an incumbent. So, overall CR, I want to do a gut check. I literally want to know how is your gut. <laughs> what I mean by this is I was watching uh, Bill Maher over the weekend, you know, he's a screaming liberal, he swears a lot. And he said on his show that he had been drinking before the taping. I actually Honestly, don't know if he was kidding or not. I don't, I don't know how to judge that. But uh, he clearly, if you watched his body language, if you listened to how he was talking, he felt sick, actually, about the possibility of Donald Trump really winning. And he was even joking about whether, you know, I'll see you next week, but I don't know for sure if we'll still be on the air because some kind of a dictator could come in and, I guess, cut the wires uh, behind the show or something like that. He also had Obama on. He's been trying to get him on for years. 
And even Obama looked kind of worried, like, what about my legacy folks? So what I want to know is, how are you sleeping? <laughs> how often do you get up in the middle of the night or early in the morning? And how many times a day do you check <laughs> Nate Silver's 538 projections? Are, um, are you well? I, yeah, I am. I'm actually sleeping fine. I don't I don't obsess about, about Nate Silver or the other projections. Um Probably as much as other Nate people Silver's do. the most favorable to Trump at the moment, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, he still has Hillary winning, but but he he keeps it uh, very very tight. Um, in fact, tighter than he thinks Obama's race was in 2012. Um, you know, a lot of people I know are are nervous. A lot of people I know are anxious. You know, I had a couple people last week say, "Hey, I'm selling all my stock. I'm going to cash." I mean, they were all worried about <laughs> you know a Trump a Trump election. Oh, but the and but a Wall meltdown. Street responded today. It, right, it, and I don't today, know and I don't know search. if these people did, but they would have been stupid to do it because um, look at today. There's there's a sense that over the weekend with the FBI reversing. Just you know, kidding. Yeah, just kidding. Yeah, she is she is innocent. No problem um, with the emails. That now it looks like Hillary's going to win. I do think I do think she will win. I mean, we're a day out, and and the the map does favor her. The polls favor her. The odds makers favor her. I mean, it would take a it would take a you know he's tight in the race. He's made her work for it. Oh yeah. She's back in Michigan. They're back in Pennsylvania. Two you know states why they go to those states the day before the election? I didn't realize this because they don't early vote. They're they don't all early about, vote. They're all about election day. Right. Right. However, I still think it's not a great sign if you're Hillary Clinton and you have to spend several days, including right today, um, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. And I mean, Pennsylvania. those are states, you know, you yeah. should you should be in a situation where you're spending those final days in Florida or in Ohio. Now, she's been to the, both those states, but I mean, the big capstone event tonight for Clinton is in Pennsylvania. Uh, and you say, well... They don't vote till election day either, so there isn't early voting. But but if you were stronger and in a stronger position, you probably wouldn't have to be in Pennsylvania. Okay, let's move on to Initiative 732, back to a Washington state measure. Um, this one, to me, is quite interesting because there's a lot of moving parts to it. The dynamics a lot of kind of parts to yeah it. <laughs> yeah uh, the dynamics kind of keep shifting a little bit. Whereas all the other initiatives, the dynamic was pretty baked early. Baked early, yeah. I think this one has had not just some drama behind the scenes, but actually some legitimate sort of movement. I think this could be a bit of the sleeper of this election. I don't think it's going to win, but I think it's going to do better than most people think. Where are you at in 732? This, of course, being the carbon tax. Yeah, you know, I think what it's up against, that this might be, I don't mean to insult anyone, but sort of low information voters, as we call them, uh, love the idea that Washington could lead the country in taxing carbon. It's the details that kind of hang folks up. And so now what's happening is sort of people from outside Washington and some from inside Washington are opining. And you have these strange, strange bedfellows. U.S. Senator Slade Gorton is teaming up in some way, if you think about it, with Leonardo DiCaprio. How does that work? <laughs> it's hard to explain how that works, but we're going to give it a shot here anyway. So my answer to that I'll, with Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, I don't mean this as, as badly as it might sound, but, you know, Hollywood types are not really great at the details of these things. They love the idea of a carbon tax. It makes them feel good in their air-conditioned homes and fancy cars. And then along comes Slade Gorton, you know, Leonardo's new best friend. <laughs> 
Uh, and he has said that he supports this. And I imagine it's because it's the most friendly to business version of this that will occur. Uh, and he's also been quoted as saying he likes the fact that it's revenue neutral. But even that sentence doesn't really hold up because the State Office of Financial Management disagrees even with that premise. Can you explain that? And Well, the idea is that, that you raise a carbon tax and then you basically rebate it in the form of sales tax relief, one percentage point reduction in the sales tax, and then some B&O tax relief and, and some tax credits. But most of it is, is the sales tax rebate. It's not perfect. You, you, you actually um, rebate a little bit more than you, than you gain in the carbon tax. It's not quite revenue neutral. It costs a little bit, but let's, for purposes of say of 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 this argument, say it's revenue neutral. That is what is generating this this support, late support, really, from these Republicans like Slay Gordon. Even Rob McKenna has come out now in favor of it. I mean, that was the hope all along from the people pushing this: that the revenue neutral aspect of it, that it would not cost anything to to impose a carbon tax, was supposed to to generate all kinds of moderate bipartisan support. The model was British Columbia. They did this six or seven years ago, a revenue neutral proposition, and it did get a lot of moderate Republican and conservative support. They were hoping that would happen. It's a little bit happening here, but Slate yeah, came out, I think, three days ago. and four, you know, so, so it's pretty late for these Republicans to get on board. Um, I think it's probably too late for this thing to pass, but it sure is interesting at the 11th hour that 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 you're getting Republicans actually thinking, well, maybe this is a climate piece of legislation I can be for. Well, but the Office of Financial Management said not only is it not revenue neutral, but that it will actually compete with education, maybe to the tune of $800 million on the impact on state government. And there's another funny bit here, and we may have mentioned this, but I think we should it bears repeating. And that is, yes, the sales tax under this measure, if it passed, is supposed to drop 1% except you're not going to notice it if you vote for sound transit because that goes up a bit. So it'll be like, I thought I was supposed to get this sales tax relief, but not really. So not so much. I, yeah, I think there's a there's a bit of an undercurrent here with some of these Republicans, which is they don't like Inslee. They don't like his his green jobs, climate, you know, agenda. They don't like his push for for, you know, they have not liked his push for carbon taxes, cap and trade, all the rest. Here is a bit of a, a backdoor slam at Inslee. In other words, Republicans some would actually love this to pass so that they can be the and, and Inslee, of course, does not like this measure. Right. Partly he doesn't like the revenue neutralness of it. He wants to, if you're going to raise a carbon tax, he wants to raise the money and do things with it. But here's a chance for Republicans to kind of do an end run to actually put on the books a carbon tax that was opposed by Mr. Green Governor Jay Inslee. That would be a great jujitsu moment for them. I don't think they're going to win this, but I think at the end, a lot of them are thinking, wow, here's our chance to do something that is even greener than anything Inslee has been able to to pass in his four years in office. Yes, that's right. You know, most governors around here want to be known as the education governor. I'm sure Jay Inslee would say the same, but I've always thought of him more as the climate change governor. Uh, and I also think that you know, this idea, like this thing does not poll very well yet. Hasn't. You never know uh, what, what folks who are in the last minute are trying to decide what Leonardo DiCaprio wants them to do or something like that. 
But my take on this is this comes back. If it, if it goes down, it comes back. And it's very much the Jay Inslee version of it, which has sort of more help uh, for people who would end up paying more yeah. for basic heating oil and things like that. Yeah, a couple things here, and then, then we should move on to the governor's race. But one is you got to hand it to this Euron Bauman, who is this kind of one-man show, this economist at the UW who actually kind of created this thing. And, you know, he, he blasted forward, even though half the environmental community didn't want him to. He got this on the ballot without uh, without paid signatures. So, you know, he's, he's you know, you got to commend him for that. Um, I am hearing, and I'll just say this finally, from you know, kind of an interesting group of people, some sort of Democrats who say, you know, I may actually vote for this thing. It's not perfect, but I want a carbon tax and and the details and the revenue neutral problems of it can be fixed later. This is maybe our only chance to get something related to climate on, uh, you know, in legislation because we can't, we aren't getting it out of the, the legislature. Governor's race. Did you see this letter to the editor in the Seattle Times? Pretty interesting from Dan Evans, the former Republican governor, probably the most popular governor we've ever had in the state, three term. Uh, he's taken the Times to task for its endorsement of Jay Inslee. It was uh, a wishy-washy editorial. It was really back. It was a bit faint praise. Yeah. yeah. Um, saying that, you know, there've been problems with his management, all the rest, but he's still the, he's still, we think the better choice. Um, Evans really taking them on saying, Hey, if you think he's a bad manager, why the heck are you endorsing him? It's time for a, a new change, breath of fresh air, Bill Bryant. Your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, they had a line in there that said that Bill Bryant, who I absolutely thought they were going to endorse, needed a couple more lines on his resume, meaning that port commissioner isn't a natural stepping stone to governor. So that's one thought. I'll just say I love Dan Evans as much as, as the next Washingtonian. He is, a, in fact, a statewide treasure. He really is. But one point, and I know this uh, because I spoke to both of them. Dan Evans has been advising Bill Bryant. And he, Dan, even told me, remember early on, where Bill Bryant refused to um, disassociate himself uh, from Donald Trump. Dan Evans gave him that piece of advice. Now, they obviously changed a, a few months ago and, and decided they didn't want to be supporters of Donald Trump. And two, it is really, and, and this is where I actually agree with Dan Evans on this point, it's pretty hard to say that after these four years, Jay Inslee sort of convinced the Seattle Times and others that he was all over funding um, K-12 education because he's got this small task force. So Dan Evans, uh, in the letter, criticized him for, for yes, you, cre you created this task force. You don't even go to the meetings very often, very infrequently. And so I do think that that is something, and I'm sure that's why they ran the letter. They had to say something about whether Jay Inslee was serious enough about funding education. And that was his biggest critique, that Evan said, listen, he's had four years to come up with a plan. We're, of course, under Supreme Court mandates, but more money into education. Um, and there's still, there's still no clear plan for McCleary. I will say, however, that, you know, Bill Bryant hasn't come up with a, a clear plan for, for McCleary either. Yeah, I mean, but that's why they couldn't go for Bill Bryant, right. because he was too The vague. fact is, no one has come up with a really clear plan, because it's a very hard final piece, which is, this, tax which is this over-reliance on local levies. It is very interesting that you would think that in a context where the state is under a Supreme Court contempt order being fined $100,000 a day to put more money into schools, you know, a popular thing, 
that the sitting governor would be hurt more by this. And Bill Bryant just has not gotten traction. In fact, I can't see anyone that's losing their jobs because of because of the McCleary court mandate. And I have a couple theories on that, and I'd like your response. One is, I think partly the reason is because a lot of the McCleary mandate has actually been fulfilled. The parts that people see, they have now filled the all-day kindergarten box. They have now filled lowering teacher, you know, lowering class sizes in elementary school. That box is checked. They have checked the box on transportation that deals with school or school buses. They have checked the box on supplies and materials. So a lot of the visible stuff that McCleary was requiring has been done. So there is this sense that progress has happened. And the final piece, which is this over-reliance on local levies, is really in some ways an accounting problem, not anything that you will see in schools. What they're saying is that local levies are paying too much for teacher salaries. Not that teachers need to be paid more or less, but you just need to switch the burden so that you need to lower local property tax levies, raise the state property tax levy so that teachers are just being paid more out of the state pot than local pot. But that's not going to change teacher salaries. That is an accounting thing that's not going to be seen. I think a lot of McCleary has been felt, and that's helping the governor. And that is Governor Jay Inslee's argument in the debates and in the ads and every other thing, that the state has invested a lot of new money into K-12 education. So that's been his argument. Well, so that we don't run out of time here, I want to do the sort of last-minute takeaways from this thrilling and at times <laughs> slimy election. Yeah, what do you see? Predictions, takeaways, what do you think will you remember? Uh... So here's what I hope are the, at least one takeaway. Uh, these are some of the just the big screaming highlights of this thing. Uh, I want when they go low, we go high. Michelle Obama's great line to be something that we remember from 2016 because it's positive and it's upbeat and it's how it's how we should treat one another. Uh, there will be some sense that this was the election where we we in the U.S. almost became a banana republic. Especially, especially with Donald Trump's call to lock Hillary up. I mean, really, that sounds so banana republic. Uh, I'm struck in a very serious way by Leonard Pitt's column that ran Sunday here in the Seattle Times. It's memorable because he was talking about how uh, the Republican Party could never really abide a black president. And so that is where, you know, simmering over time, we are getting to this new nationalism and racism in politics that a lot of us, myself included, could not see coming. Uh, another takeaway, I would say Republican Party chairwoman Susan Hutchinson. She may, in fact, need a new job when this is all over. She became a joke with her answer to the Donald Trump's grab him by the genitals business, saying it was no big deal. You know, you know why? Because Donald Trump was a Democrat back then. That was the biggest ouch locally for, for some of us here. Uh, and then a compliment to Republican Senate candidate Chris Vance. He's, he's certainly about to lose the Senate bid. But I thought he presented himself as a moral, likable individual. He came out early and he blasted Donald Trump. So if Chris isn't elect, elected, he's going to be admired. 
I have a couple things, six or seven here takeaways, uh, in no particular order, but I do think there will be this moment we remember, which is sometime back in July, June, July, when there was basically the break between Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, the break between Trump and the establishment, when he said in a campaign speech that day and basically thereafter, we don't need their support, we can do it alone. And... That got a lot of rallying cries in the in the hall he was in. But listen, the 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 the, the experiment he is running is that he can do it alone, and I just don't think that works. I think you need to have brought in the Republican establishment. Need it's to have grown the tent. Not enough money or ground game. Not right? enough money. You you, yeah. you can't do it alone. He needed to figure out a way to be this upstart, but also work to bring in the establishment. He never he never sort of did. I'm not saying that would have been an easy dance, but he never tried. I think we'll look back on the FBI. It will have taken a huge credibility hit. Um, both Republicans, Democrats, think there needs to be a new leader there, and and that's going to be a, a, a an institution that's going to need some 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 help. I think we'll remember rig system as a phrase. I think we'll remember the phrase "put her in jail." I think the October November surprises are going to be that Access Hollywood tape from Trump and this Clinton email investigation, the sort of first Comey letter, if you will. One other thing about emails, I would say we all learned a lesson this campaign, which is, and it comes from John, from, from John Podesta, which is, you know, if you get something that says, hey, change your password, don't do that until you've talked to someone. That was, that was Podesta's problem. He got this email that said, change your password, and he did, and that, that screwed him up. I will make a prediction about going forward. There's a lot of claim that we're a divided country and that this nightmare is just beginning, not ending with the election. I think... That is worrisome, though, right? And I will say, I have sort of a different take on this. I think, you know, I expect Hillary to win. And I think um, I think she will surprise on the upside. She has always been very unpopular during elections, but then very popular once she's governing. So in 2000, she was very unpopular running for Senate. She became a popular senator and approval numbers went up. She was very unpopular, polarizing in that 2008 election, but then she became Secretary of State and her poll numbers went up. I think she has a chance to surprise in the upside. I think the country will be wanting to come together more than we think. I think she can reach across the aisle. I think she has a chance to do that. I think there is an opportunity to put this behind us and not have the nightmare continue. That's a kind of a bold prediction. I'm an outlier in that. And you're we'll an see. optimist, and we love that. And to, and, and, and to be fair, I actually think that there might have been a way for Trump to do that, too. That worry to win, I think there would have been a chance for him to cross the aisle, too, and surprise on the upside. So this will also go down in history as the Twitter election, because you had one candidate that just could not resist Mr. Trump. But I think the most interesting thing about that Twitter part of the election is the fact in the in the recent days, they finally got his, his phone and his Twitter uh, account away from him for those late-night musings that he did. Hey, thanks for listening to The Analysts. I'm Joni Balter. He is C.R. Douglas. And we are The Analysts. For more election stories, please visit us at kcts9.org. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.